because you're jumping back into the gut. All right. Hey, Coach. Welcome to the Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Oliver. I appreciate you joining us for this week's podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit basketballimmersion.com for more coaching resources and access to all the basketball podcasts. I hope you will give us a shout out on social media, on Twitter at Bball Immersion, or on Instagram at Basketball Immersion to help me continue to share the game. Enjoy the episode. Excited to welcome Nagayo Diamond Dolphins head coach, Sean Dennis. Coach Dennis is coaching the Japanese professional basketball league called the B-League since 2017. The 2016 Australian NBL Coach of the Year with the Townsville Crocodiles has considerable experience coaching in Australia and New Zealand prior to his first coaching position in Japan with the Shiga Lake Stars. Coach Dennis was previously the New Zealand national women's basketball team head coach and won a New Zealand NBL championship with the Hawks Bay Hawks and the league's coach of the year honor. Coach Dennis, welcome to the podcast. Fantastic uh, to be here. I'm uh, actually a little bit nervous with all the uh, great people you've had on this podcast, you know, and getting to listen to it. It's, you know, I love listening to it. So now to be a guest is uh, actually quite an honor. So I thank you so much for having me on. Well, thank you for being here and uh, thanks for saying that. And uh, so many fun things to be able to talk about and, uh, you know, just a an incredible career in coaching that covers every aspect of coaching. Uh, and people are curious about what the profession looks like overseas. They can look at your resume, can't they? <laughs> they can. You know, I've been a lifer from sleeping on, uh, you know, the hardwood on a, a blow-up mattress, coaching kids to, I think, like every coach that ends up being a career coach is somewhere on the line had to, to do all those things but you, you know it's all part of the journey and it's actually a lot of fun with the people you meet over the time. So one of the interesting things that came up is when you moved from uh, Australia to Japan to coach uh, it came up in in an article that I read and it talks about you completely rethinking your image as a coach and I just want you to talk about that a little bit because I think that lesson is so important for coaches to understand that regardless of age experience etc you can change. Yeah, it was big, you know, it's because you you move into a completely different culture. And um, when I went from Australia to New Zealand, I, you know, I was a younger coach. I was pretty volatile. Um, you know, I didn't I didn't deal with players uh, making you know many errors very well. And I and I think my first response was to was to use a, you know an aggressive approach. Um, and and. People really thought I, I I wouldn't survive in New Zealand, and and I, and I did, and I didn't change too much. But as it went on, um, and then I moved to Japan, I found very quickly such a different culture. And uh, when you got angry, like or, or aggressive in your response to the way the players were, were behaving, um, there was they would shut down on you completely. And I realised very quickly that hey hang on a minute I I can't do that I, I've got to make change to me and and how I deal with things and, and I'd been reading a lot anyway because I think the youth of today are so different from when I was a player you know 30 odd years ago you know I was brought up in a very aggressive environment where it was almost autocratic and you know your coach yelled at you you didn't think anything of it you just you, you shut up and put up and just got on with the job but today, and I think it's right that the players will ask questions. They want to know the why. They want to know. They want the instruction, and and you know you've got to earn their respect. And that was something I realised. And so I I did a lot of 
study after my first year as a head coach in Shiga on the education system in Japan. And, uh, and I realized very quickly that we're bringing these, these kids into an environment where we're asking them to talk, we're asking them to make decisions, we're asking them to do all these things that culturally they haven't been uh, encouraged to do those things. So I was like, okay, we've got to completely change the way we're approaching this um, and, 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 and start to educate and give the kids the confidence that it's okay to speak. It's okay to not always follow the coach's advice, you know, and, and so we changed. One thing I changed was, and I've seen a few other coaches do similar, is we don't have any rules. We have guidelines um, because the Japanese are so good at following rules. But what, I, what you come to understand in the game of basketball is that sometimes the rule doesn't fit the situation, the environment, that, that scenario that's in front of you. You're actually going to have to make your own decision and maybe go against what the rule says because that's what's called for in that moment. And so we changed that to guidelines. Um, I changed my approach to a more questioning approach, which is still difficult because it takes a while for the local players to want to actually give an answer because they think you're trying to catch them out and get them wrong and, and, and teaching them that, no, I'm, I'm, I'm doing this so I know whether you've got the information that I'm trying to give to you. And it takes a little longer um, than normal, but what I've found is it's, it becomes a much better learning environment and the lessons that the players learn as it goes on uh, tend to stick and, and then you start to see that just start to flow into the game and, you know, it's, it's a lot of fun and it, it's taught me so much about me as a person and where do you go with this? What do you do? How do you go from this to this? And, and, and I've found that the players are, are much more receptive to the information and, and really trying to do the right thing and then just encouraging them to keep trying and try things and it's okay when you don't quite get it right. You know, and rather than getting down on yourself, what did you learn in this moment? You know, and with the language barrier at times, it's difficult, but my players are getting better. And I think I've become a far better coach for it. That's for sure. Well, that was my question. And do you feel like you're a better coach and do you feel more comfortable coaching this way? I, I actually do. You know, it's, um, it's challenging at times because I'm a passionate guy and of course, you know, when I got this, this new job in Nagoya, one of the things the general manager said to me, you know, you get, you know, you're quite animated sometimes on the sideline, you get quite angry. And I said, look, it's not anger, it's passion. I said, I love this game I've been involved with for, since I was made the decision to leave Australian rules football and focus on basketball at 19. You know, I'm 56 now. So for 37 years, this has been my life. And, and I love watching the players do well and I love those when you see a player have that light bulb moment when you just you, the realization of of what we're trying to achieve and, and and why you're pushing them so hard and you know I have a player right now Ray Parker Jr um, whose father was a legend in the Philippines and he in the last two weeks I've seen that light bulb moment of this kid he's very very talented but needed pushing and coaching and he allowed some of the things that we were doing, uh, specifically me, to, to draw away from his confidence. And, and I've tried, we finally got him now to where he now understands what I'm doing. I'm just trying to make him become the player 
that he should be and, and can be and wants to be. And so that's going to take me pushing a little bit. And at times I'm going to confront you. I'm going to, but we've gotten through that hurdle. And in the last, uh, last couple of games, he's been, you know, just outstanding. And you just see he's a different person now. He's, he's understanding it. And that's, I think, made me a far better, a far better person, not just a coach. And, and now the players feel more comfortable coming to me. And that's a big thing for me is, is you know, and you hear a lot of longtime coaches talk about, um, those relationships, you know, when you get a phone call from an ex-player asking you about life. And that's really, for me, the, the, the most pleasing moments of the coaching profession. Yeah, there's no question. Those are some great moments. And uh, thanks for sharing that introspection as well. Uh, and it's going to lead us into some of the things we're going to talk about more specifically, which is one of them is improving your timeout effectiveness. And you already talked a little bit about how some players, obviously, in Japan, you know, they, they, they look at things differently. So I'm sure that this has been shaped even more by your experiences there, but let's maybe just start with uh, improving your timeout effectiveness. What are some of the moments, well, one of the most important things we should consider? Well, I think the most important thing you should consider, and um, I often talk to coaches and there's something I've tried before is how much information is actually going to be retained by the players. And a great little test you can do is have the players in a locker room before practice and give a pre-game speech. And then after the warm-up, ask the players some of the specifics of that pre-game speech and see how much they actually remember. And you'll find it's not that much, you know, and, and <laughs> you see some coaches whiteboards before a game and, and there's just, you're just like, oh my gosh, it's an essay. How, how, in Lord's name, are they going to remember all this information? You know, and I remember um, years ago, I heard a coach say he did three things, one defense, one offense, and one general thing. And I started that approach. And I've even found that sometimes that's too much information. And so for me, you're going into a timeout. It, I'm at a stage now where it's, it's, Virtually one thing, you know, what's the most important thing right now that we need to talk about coming into this timeout? And now if I've called it, I've probably got a specific reason. It might be a defensive reason. It might be an offensive uh, situation, whatever it might be. But certainly there's only one main point now, and I think the players tend to remember that. And then I might ask the players a question. If it was a defensive reason, okay, what do you want to do on offense here? And you know, something along those lines. You know, occasionally you get a little bit grumpy and you might, hey, you know, we need to pick this up. But, you know, I've found that that's becoming ineffective too and that's hard to control. But the most effective thing is what is the most important thing right now for the game? And, you know, that's the only thing I believe you've got time to do. And in Japan, you get a minute timeout and they are sticklers that it is only 60 seconds. And I've got to cut that in half because everything I say has to be interpreted. So I don't have time. You know, I have maybe 30 seconds. And then if you take, you know, 10 seconds to quickly ask your assistant coaches what they think, I'm down to 20 seconds maybe. So I've found it to be much more effective. Okay, we want to change this on the defense. You know, or, hey, you know, what's going on with the pick and roll right now? You know, we're a bit late on that. Is there a reason? And, you know, the player, well, okay, well, let's pick that up and get back to doing the way we talk about. And, you know, that's – and I found the players are starting to respond a lot more effectively with that. But it's just 
knowing exactly what it, the reason is and not being angry, um, which is not easy and because there's times where you're really frustrated, but you can't let that boil over. Yeah, it reminds me of the notion of being, do you want to be impressive or effective? And when we have all yeah. those things or we have all these great speeches, all these different things, yeah, you may seem impressive, but is it effective? And that's what it comes back to. And one thing that I love that you've shared as well is that you, you like to have your timeouts filmed. Now, I'm curious about that process. Is that all year or is that sometimes or is it just it, to evaluate? It, it, it's, it's sometimes, but it's, it's to evaluate a number of things. Either, you know, you watch some timeouts and you see a player drinking his water bottle and looking over there. So you can't, I know, you know, reading some articles recently that some people don't and, and culturally too this is something i had to learn in new zealand you know i was always brought up must have eye contact you know eyes on but i've i've learned very quickly in new zealand that in the maori culture uh it's disrespectful to make eye contact with someone who's seen a higher status than you when they're talking and i didn't realize that and i got angry at a player one time hey give me your eyes right now and then later they say oh coach we probably should have told you this but that's a cultural thing there. He was listening and focused. Um, so one is to are the players paying attention, but but a big one is for me, like, uh, was I effective in my timeout? You know, did was the information I gave appropriate to the moment in the game? Because there's no doubt sometimes what you see at that moment with the eye test is not necessarily what's actually happening, you know. And one of the things I've gotten big on with my group is sometimes we see somebody, you know, not make a defensive coverage, but until you watch the film, the reason he didn't get his defensive coverage was because two phases before this player, A, didn't do his job. And then this guy's had to come from a wrong position to try and help player A back two phases before. And sometimes you don't see that in the game. So you've got to be very careful that yelling at this guy or getting on this guy for not being there when it was this guy's fault over here. And I call that the ripple effect. You know, don't be the pebble in the pond. You know, so when a pe pebble goes into the pond, there's a ripple and it hits the, hits the shore somewhere. You know, those waves will go somewhere. So if you're that pebble causing a ripple, you need to fix what you're doing. And, and we try to look for that pebble that hits the pond so that we make sure we get it right. And sometimes I'll ask, you know, the assistant, why, why didn't he get that help? Or, and I'll say, oh, so-and-so broke down. So then we can go in the timeout and go, hey, you know, you got to make sure you get that pick and roll defense right. You can't be late on that coverage. Otherwise, we break down over here. And uh, that, that's another reason why I like to film it. You know, did we give the right information? Was my demeanor a positive demeanor or a negative demeanor? You know, because I believe I have to evaluate myself the hardest. And that's something that I'm, I'm really hard on myself first and foremost. Was there something I can do better? And I feel the timeouts are a very crucial situation. You know, the end of games, were my instructions clear? You know, if we didn't run the play that we drew up properly, you know, um, because sometimes in a game as a coach, you know, particularly late game, you might have a play that you, you, you've practiced for that moment, but you notice the coverage of the defense is, is not going to allow that play to work. So we can just throw this little wrinkle in, you know, so was my information right to do that, uh, to throw that wrinkle so the players could then go out there and do that at that moment. Hey coach, brief interruption from the podcast. Have you heard of Spotify Greenroom? 
Spotify Green Room is a free audio-only social media platform for sports fans. Start a joint ongoing conversations, watch games together, react to the biggest news, rumors, and games. Talk with other sports fans, insiders, athletes, and executives in real time. I host a room every Tuesday at 9 p.m. Come through and talk with me live. All you need to do is download the Spotify Green Room app free in the iOS or Android app store. Create a profile, link your Twitter, and join the conversation. Follow me at B-Ball Immersion on Twitter to be notified when my room goes live. Something you alluded to and I want us to build on is this concept of uh, reading the emotion of your team, you know, coming into the timeout, during the timeout, et cetera. And just talk to us about some of the strategies or some of the cues that you use to be able to read the emotion of your team. Well, you know, one of the first thing, you know, is reading the body language of the players coming in, you know, are they hanging their head? Um, you know, what's the mood of it? Is, is one player, you know, angry at something? You know, why is he angry? You know, what's he, what's he down about? You know, or, uh, you know, one of, one of my pet hates, you know, when I got into coaching, one of the things that I did was I, I looked back at my playing career, coaches I had, and, and the different things players would do. And, and one of the things that I noticed a lot in my playing career was players would come in trying oh we've got to stay positive or we've got to do this and they were normal actually weren't doing very well and i felt it was a way of sometimes players doing things to deflect responsibility and try and make out that if the coach now comes in like angry then he's the one being negative and you're like well hang on a minute you know and, and so if a player does those things you know sometimes i'll ask him a question of you know, what, what what do you mean by that you know what's the purpose of of this situation, you know, but a big one I, I look for is, you know, is, is my team flattened down? Well, then I can't, I can't jump and be angry if they look down. I've got to find a way to lift them back up. And then that might be making a substitution, making sure that I give a very um, solution-based, uh, so give solution-based information so that there's direct, you know, sometimes it's, hey, we just need, you know, hey, we're getting great shots here. Why, why are you hanging your heads? They're the shots we talk about. But are we tagging up? You know, we, we use the Aaron Fern tag up system. But are we getting the tag up done? Because we always talk about we never want anyone second guess their shot. So are we tagging up to give that player the confidence to shoot? Oh, no, we could do better than that. Okay, well, then let's pick that up, fellas. You know, let's get that done so our best shooters feel confident to keep shooting because we don't want them to second guess themselves at any time. So you're looking for those types of things, you know, is, is there anger amongst the group? Well, what's, what's, what's causing this? You know, why aren't we together right now? And I really try hard to read that. And, um, you know, over the years, you know, really understanding that, that people are emotional and, and trying to, and, and particularly in Japan, you know, they have the thing where they say they, they read the air and, you know, you've got to be really, because, and mostly because they won't, they, they avoid conflict. So, they tend to react to what they feel are people's emotions and body language. So that's a really important thing. And I talk a lot to the, you know, new foreign players that come in. You've got to be very mindful of this. If you're too angry, they will shut down on you. You know, you've got to have some em- empathy at times and make sure you back up any anger with, with the reasons why, et cetera. And, and that's the biggest thing we're looking for when they come into a timeout. Great stuff. Great depth coach. Thanks for sharing those insights. And uh, obviously the process is, is, is challenging, but uh, it's such a necessary part of it. And I'm curious also with timeout, do you allow assistants or players to talk in the timeout once you go into the timeout? Absolutely. You know, um, I'm one person. I don't have all the answers, you know, 
and and the day I the day I think I have all the answers, then it's probably time to retire, hang up the clipboard, and move on to something else. And you know, I'm I'm really fortunate. You know, my my point guard is extremely intelligent, and uh, he's often two or three plays ahead of everyone else in the team, and and sometimes including myself. So if he's got something to say, I want to listen. You know, and the only time I, I say, if I am talking, just let me finish and then you can have your say. Um, and there has been times too where an assistant coach will come to me and say, hey, blah, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'll say, well, okay, you tell the team that. And if you're, you've got the information, you get, you get in there and let them, let them know this information. And, you know, and, and probably one of the greatest times I've seen a coach do that was when I was with the Dochigi Brex my first year in Japan. And we had a, a situation, the last play, we, we make a bucket, we make the championship game. And we've got, I think there's, uh, there's around about three seconds uh, left on the clock. And um, the assistant coach came, Wiesman was our head coach, who's the head coach of Gunma now. And the assistant coach, Onzai, is now the head coach of the team that won the championship. He came and said, I've got the perfect play. And Tom just said to him, go ahead and draw it. So at a pinnacle moment, he gave the responsibility to our assistant coach. And the play worked perfectly. It wasn't new. It was very simple. Players did it perfectly. Uh, Ryan Rossley hit the basket. We go on to win the championship, the very first championship of the B League. And, you know, and I think as a head coach, you have to trust people that, they have good information and you, you build that trust. And in that moment, Tom trusted Onzai and it was a great lesson to all of us about, the, you know, having trust in the people around you. And, and that's a really important part as a head coach. It's great stuff. And uh, you mentioned tagging up earlier. And um, I know there's a lot of coaches uh, that, uh, you know, we, we have an immersion video on uh, tagging up for Aaron Fern. I know a lot of coaches yeah. have used it or tried it or experimented with it, or talked to someone about it. So maybe uh, give us your, your takeaways from having used it and uh, how it's effective for your team. Look, I was always, um, you know, Aaron, I think when he talked to me, talked about uh, the Perth Wildcats in New Zealand being such great offensive rebounders. One of my jobs at, uh, at Perth was the defensive transition. And I was always a triangle on the boards, you know, get your dogger, dogger on the free throw line as that area to tap the ball out to and get a safety to the center circle. And, you know, I was a big driver of that at, at Perth um, with Rob, Rob Beveridge was our head coach at the time. And, and, and I'd always done that. And my teams had always been good offensive rebounding teams, even when I was a head coaching. And then I saw what Fernie did with the tag up and I loved it immediately. I was like, this is perfect. And I, you know, and I've seen people say, oh, but you give up now, right now, uh, our defensive transition this year in the B League is is one of the best in the league, and we use we use the tag up. The players are still learning it because it's big habits to change, and the toughest one, as he talks about, is when that is being on the high side of the defender and pushing him towards the baseline. It's getting the players to really fight that urge, particularly when a player shoots a three point shot from the top of the key. And he knows it's off and his instinct is to go and chase the ball and he can't do that. And, and um, when that happens, you can almost guarantee you're going to give up a contested layup at the other end and unless you get the ball. But um, I think 
I love it because it allows you to apply immediate pressure. Uh, once the players get the concept and we talk about it a lot, they've, they've fallen in love with it and they, they really get it now and they go, hey, hang on, this is, this is actually really good. And, and the, the biggest fight I've had is with my foreign players. They're like, but coach, you know, I'm now I'm worried about when I shoot, I've got to tag up. I was like, you don't need to worry about that. My general rule is the shooter. Yeah, he doesn't have to tag. He just, he just gets back. And, you know, now the players, but the more you drill it, you know, like anything in head coaching, if you want to have an emphasis, then you have to do it every time you practice. You have to, you have to demand it. You have to set it as one of your standards. And, and the, even when we're doing five on zero, the players are yelling, yelling, tag up, tag up when someone shoots. You know, if we're doing a, uh, a you know, a, a, a conceptual shooting drill and, and we might only have one guy shooting because we want to practice, you know, there's a lot of times you do some conceptual shooting and then you have some assistant coaches throw so everyone gets a shot. Well, sometimes we don't do that because we want the two non-shooters to think tag up, tag up. And, and the players will be yelling that, yelling it from the sidelines. And, and we've found now that we're very hard to fast break again. You know, and as Aaron said, you're set. You're set. And if you do your job, um, then there's pressure. And, you know, when we get it right, we're really good. A few times we haven't got it very right. And, um, you know, one game against Shiga this year, we got it really wrong. And, you know, they belted us by 30 and they're a fast break team. But when I viewed the video after, I realized we weren't on the high side enough and we were we weren't turning that into a 50-50 contest and then we were too often trying to steal the ball on the rebound and, of course, they just turned and ran by us. And so that's against the principle of what it's about. And making those small adjustments, I think, is, is the real key. But I'm, I'm, a, I'm a believer in it. And, uh, you know, if you want to be a pressure defensive team, I think it's the most perfect thing that you can have. And, and we, we are about that because we want to play, play at tempo. So we need to, particularly teams that want to slow you down, you need to be up and trying to force them into a bit of a tempo game. Um, so that's very helpful for that, which is actually very different to the way Aaron played the game. Yeah. It was much more grinding. Yeah, and it's, it's fascinating to hear that. And, and definitely the advantages for obviously, uh, you know, we talked about defensive transition, but I think, you know, another end of the floor that we don't think about is how does it affect your overall team's rebounding philosophy or effort? And I'm imagining based on what you're talking about, it's not just the one side of the floor that they develop this rebound mentality. It applies to both sides, doesn't it? It does. And, and to be honest, um, you know, with, with this team this year, it's, it's, it's a real culture we're having to change and it's taking longer than I hoped. Um, one of the deficiencies when I came in here was that this team was the second worst possession team in the league last year. And, um, you know, we, we're trying to change that, that culture and it's taking longer, um, but it's improving slowly, but surely, you know, and, but it's, it's, Whereas when I did it at Shiga, they we were second in rebounding, first in rebounding over the, the four years I had there in the top three every year. And they seemed to, to, to really want to be part of that a lot quicker. But this group, for whatever reason, is, is it's taking a little bit longer. But it's, there's no doubt there's still been times where we've won a couple of games where um, the rebounding is the possession game because that's such a big part of my philosophy is possession game. Uh, that we've been able to win that and, and then get crucial possessions at crucial times 
And the, you can see the players now starting to click and go, oh, okay, I, I'm getting this. And we had a moment of practice yesterday where we, we had a, I think there was about 35 seconds left on the clock of a scrimmage and um, one team got three offensive rebounds and I just said, hey, what was the, how did they end up winning that? And, they, and the, all the players said possession game. You know, we, we got the possession, you know, and we knew that that was what was going to win that moment. And, you know, sometimes it's not the X's and O's, it's that, it's that factor of a, of a part of what you do in winning possession. And I think it's, I'm a big believer in it and, and I still think it, it leads to uh, more winning. And, and when we won the championship in Tochigi, we averaged 10 more shots a game than our opposition. That's hard to beat. Then, you, then I believe your shooting percentages don't come into it as much. So if you have a poor shooting night, you're still going to be in the game because of weight of numbers. And I really believe in weight of numbers. Then those nights you do shoot the ball while you normally win by 20 plus. It's a comfortable win. But you're always in the game no matter what. Cool stuff. And uh, great to get that, uh, that out there. AaronFernBasketball.com for coaches that want to go check out more of that information. AaronFernBasketball.com. Coach, um, I love so much of the phrasing and the terminology you use. And one of them you talk about, and I want you to expand on just a little bit, is the D4 principles. Maybe just summarize them quickly for us, and then we can get into each individual one. For sure. Um, the D4 principles, um, the, the phrase D4 principles was something I, I coined. Now, I don't know if I'd heard it somewhere. Sometimes you, you watch and read and listen to so much over the years. Sometimes you forget where it comes from. But We can all relate to that, coach. Yeah, you just, you know, it's, uh, you, know, what, you know, what's funny, I run this drill I call three, two, one, where team goes down two on one, comes back three on two. And, you know, and I, and I adapted over the years and, and I, I tell people about it and I say, look, I, I, I'm sure someone showed me this one day, but, you know, this is what I've done with it. 20 years later, I joined my old head coach, Tom Wiseman in Tojigi as an assistant coach. And sure enough, when I was a player, that was where I did it. And, you know, he'd done it. But, and he taught me the, with the D4 principles, uh, which are drive, drift, drag, dive. And so I took a drive, drift, drag, dive, and I went, oh, I'll just call that the D4 principles. And then the players, I can just yell out, hey, D4 principles. And, you know, I'd always been big on receiver principles and movement off the ball. You know, one of the things that the NBA did with its global, you know, the way it went so global, um, everything became ball-oriented, one-on-one, all, you know, individuals are all about the ball, all about, you know, but not every player on, the, on your team is going to be able to do that. And I started, I first came across the receiver principles in around about 2005. And then 2006, I was very lucky to be an advanced scout for the New Zealand Tall Blacks in Japan at the World Championships. And I got to watch Argentina and Lithuania in particular um, and the way they moved without the ball. In Argentina, uh, unbelievable that, you know, uh, Fabricio Alberto was so good at just getting into that dunk the spot and then wheeling around and getting into the right spots. And Scola would get, you know, make these amazing cuts. And, and I started to really research the receiver principles a lot more. And, and over time, you know, I developed my own theories on it. And then I saw this drive, drift, drag, dive. And I thought, that's perfect. And how can we expand on that and teach the players, you know? And so now my whole thing 
from an offensive perspective is we just want to create an advantage. And once the advantage is created, it's all about the D4 principles. And the number one golden rule or, or guideline, if you like, in the D4 principles is never let one guard two. So if you're in a position where one help defender can technically guard the both of you in, on the first kick out, then you need to move. Okay, so what can you do, right? So the first thing we talk about is driving the ball. And the ball can be driven on, 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 uh, dry, <coughs> sorry, on uh, dribble penetration or pass penetration. Righto? Now, once the ball is driven, where do you go from there? And it's all dependent on what the defense does. I can give you some basic movements, but I can't tell you where to go. You have to respond to what the defense does. So that's where the drift, the dive, and the drag come into it. I don't know. So the drift is pretty simple. Everyone knows the drift. You know, you drift to the corners. And the general rule is the ball comes towards you, you have a choice of drifting or come for a handoff, depending on what your defender does. I don't know. Um, the, the dive, we have a general guideline. If you see the back of your player's head, then you must dive. All right? Or... You know, if, if there's a, a drive off a pick and roll and the big pops and you're, you're in that slot area, then you've got to dive and create double, double space um, and, and, and create that, those pockets of space for people to, to create, to take it, you know, to keep the advantage. And we call that the zero second offense. Um, you know, and then the drag is often the most open spot on the floor is where the ball penetrated from, particularly off dribble penetration. So if it's a baseline drive, then we need someone dragging in behind that because all the defense will be geared to cover the drive and then cover the next receivers on the weak side. Who's covering the guy that drags behind the ball? You know, if someone does that, that means they can't cover the others if everyone's moved because there's no way one can guard two if we have correct spacing. And so we work hard every, every practice. The first 30 minutes is about driving the ball, finishing the ball, creating space, never letting one guard to. And, and you know, we worked very, very hard. And I, I sent you some video on the very first clip in that video I sent you. That was not a, a called offense and that was against the zone. And those players, I think if you count, I think there's eight, I think there's 11 passes and eight dribbles in total. You know, and the play, all five players touch the ball. And, and you see every aspect of what we're talking about. And we end up with a wide open shot. Hey, coach, we have a new sponsor that you guys are going to love. Symbol is the stock market for sports that allows you to profit off your sports knowledge. On Symbol, you can trade sports teams like stocks. And every time your team wins, you earn cash. Using your sports knowledge on Symbol to buy low, sell high, and earn cash payouts when your team wins. Join the 7,000 plus early adopters who have started to invest in their favorite team. Visit www.symbol.com to create a free account. And when you deposit, make sure you use the promo code SD to make your deposit risk-free. It was fun to watch. And, um, it, you know, obviously the advantage shots that you're trying to create and this is zero second offense. I mean, these, these D principles obviously apply to all of those things. Uh, another thing is obviously your emphasis on reducing turnovers, and that's a big thing for you. Can you talk about some of the ways that you emphasize that within your team and within your practices? Yeah, yeah a big one. I'm, um, and, and I've been this way uh, for, for probably when I, even when I was a player. Um, when I was a player, I realized that the players that play off two feet 
generally made better decisions with the basketball. So we have a principle of what we call playoff two, draw two. And that is to drive the ball. And if you're pressured, unless you absolutely think you have a uncontested layoff layup, then I want you, you know, to play off two feet. And because I, I just believe that if you play off one foot and jump, um, and there's some coaches who teach that, but I'm not one, and that's okay. Uh, but I believe if you play off two feet, then you will you immediately, immediately eliminate a lot of turnovers because you can stop and make a good decision and use your pivots, um, you know, maybe even get rid of the double team and end up in a one-on-one where you can pivot and take a one-on-one -on -one shot close to the basket, which I think is a high percentage shot, and I encourage players to do that. But then if there is a double team, you've got the chance to pivot and find one of these receivers. And that's the big one I'm big on is, and, and drilling every, you know, all five of our players drill, uh, dribbling the ball, driving the ball, and then having to make decisions off that. And we do it in advantage, disadvantage situations at the start of practice, you know, sometimes three on four, sometimes four on three, you know, and, and, and that's just teaching the players to be able to pivot and, you know, and I think it's a real forgotten art in basketball is how to pivot correctly without traveling or making mistakes. And so we do a lot of work on that play, you know, playoff to draw to. And we're saying we want to, the moment our pattern of our offense creates an advantage, we're finished running a pattern. We're now in D4 principles. You catch the ball. Before you catch the ball, you should know if you have the shot, not after you catch the ball. So that's a big thing we teach. And then you've got to make a decision. If you're not going to shoot the ball, are you driving it or passing it? And, and putting players in positions to do that. And, you know, we do it from where the coaches play the defense to where they, they play the defense to where you have an extra numbered defender, which makes it a bit more difficult. And all of that just starts. And, and really a lot of turnovers are all up here. Um, you know, particularly at the high level, everyone's got pretty good skills. And, and you know, to me, don't put someone in a position in your offense, it's going to put them in that turnover situation unless you're coaching them not to do that. And, and we do that with all our players. You know, I think your five man needs to be able to handle the ball as much as you well, probably not as good as your point guard, but he's got to be able to dribble the ball, you know, because if he's a good five man, he's probably going to get double teamed anyway in the post. So can he dribble out of that for the moment and, and create a different advantage? And, and so we, we practice that a lot, but the big one is playing off two feet. You've got to play off two feet so you can, then make a good decision from that. And it all comes down to that decision you make at the end of whatever it is you do. Well, I, lo I love that concept and that phrasing. And the uh, other phrasing that uh, I like is obviously an emphasis in creating deflections, turnovers, but uh, you want your team to be in great flat triangles. So can you explain that a little bit to us as we shift <clears throat> to the defensive side? Yeah, well, you know, um, you know, I'm one of these coaches who's probably about halfway through last year. I've always talked about flat triangles because that was something we were brought up with in Australia, you know, and you look at the Australian teams over the history and the Australian players, they've always been pretty strong defensively and, and the, the, the national teams from juniors through to the seniors, we've always been about pressing and, um, you know, we, we always had this one third, two third concept, one third from your man, two thirds from the ball. And, you know, we, we knew, you know, we sort of decided upon probably late eighties, early nineties, that if Australia was going to have any success in international basketball, what was 
physical toughness. You know, it was our never say die attitude. It was our aggressive defense. And so a lot of things were, were done around that. And, and I've always loved the flat triangle and a big believer in, you know, particularly it's, I mean, you need to move as the ball moves to keep your, your triangles. And, um, you know, the old point, the pistols is the best way to do it. I'm, I'm yet to find, you know, a better way to do it. Some people have given me some different things. I'm going, no, nah, I still don't know that's going to help. But I know even now in Europe, some of them even going 50-50, and not even one third, two third anymore. And I remember Liam Finn talking about his time in, uh, I think it was Israel uh, he was at, and, and their coach, he actually encouraged the backdoor cut. He wasn't worried about that. So we want to be, and, and now with this peel switching concepts, which I've really fallen in love with, um, and it was only about mid last year I started to tinker with it. I really just searched the internet for everything and we played around with it in our off season. And you really have to be in those flat triangles and, you know, and, and be ready for that peel switch situation, whether it be a strong side or a weak side. And, you know, that also by being in that flat triangle, um, I believe takes away the image of space. And, you know, as an offensive player, you're, you're constantly looking for space to drive into, you know, and offenses are being designed to constantly try and create space, you know, particularly the European offenses now with all that movement and misdirection, et cetera, you know, so, with all this misdirection, then your players need to be great, in my opinion, on the flat triangles because if they keep trying to follow their man around on all this misdirection, then that's going to create massive space for, you know, the pick and roll diving, for the ball to be penetrated, for cutting, et cetera. And, you know, that I want to take that away. And we also need the flat triangles because most of our pick and roll defense is, is aggressive. You know, we stunt. We, we hedge, but not really a contain or a drops type defending team. So if we're going to be that aggressive team, then we have to be, you know, up the line, you know, and uh, that's, that's important for me with the flat triangle. And, and, you know, right now we're one of the better teams at forcing turnovers. The players are getting better at it, that even in transition, you should be in your flat triangle the ball because we allow our plugger, you know, the choice to go and trap if he wants. You know, and that's and that's important to me. That was something we did a lot of when I was at Perth with Rob Beveridge. You know, we were an amazing pressing team, and uh, the Wildcats have, have continued that on. You know, then when Trevor Gleeson came in, that foundation was there for Trevor's aggressive defense. And of course, you know, the rest is history. They've won what six championships in the last ten years, or whatever it is. And uh, you know, all of that was predicated around these flat triangles, and which allows you to be more aggressive in your defense. And it also keeps the players proactive on defense. And that's a big thing. And that's, I've never been a pack defense guy. And I, you know, I've I dabbled with it a couple of times, but I, I just, it's just not the way I want to play the game. And so, you know, the flat triangles have become a much bigger part of what we do. Well, and again, a testament to you, uh, you know, this, this far into your coaching experience and you're, you're going to tagging up and you're going to peel switching and you're doing things that are going to help your players and uh, not just do what you're used to. And uh, such an important part of this. Uh, Will Voigt, uh, episode 64 of the basketball podcast is when uh, he talked about peel switching in depth. And uh, coach, maybe just a few of the, maybe the challenges with teaching and using peel switching that maybe we haven't thought of if we haven't used it yet. 
I think the biggest one is um, <clears throat> the, the hardest one is is is, is depending on where the, where the ball penetrates from. Whether the, you know you should come from the strong side corner or the weak side, and because if you come from the strong side corner and the ball is coming across the free throw line, then your your next rotation is going to be really long. Both rotations are far too long, and you can guarantee you're going to give up a wide open shot in the corner. And you know, and I was always a guy don't help off the strong side corner. You're just going to give up a three. But one of our defensive philosophies is we want to try and we call it pin to the sideline. Mm-hmm. So we want to try and pin the ball as close to the sideline at all times. And the closer to the sideline we can force catches, then the shorter the peel switch in the strong side corner. And the hardest part has been teaching the players, particularly the weak side defenders, to recognise when it's going to be their, their, their rotation and when it's going to be the strong side rotation. And that's a tough thing. So we, I do some drills where I'll start the guy in different spots up high and we have the defender have his back to the ball carrier and the, and the ball carrier puts the ball on the back and then he chooses to drive either way. And it's to try and help the players learn to make the decisions on where's the ball being penetrated from, you know, and whose peel is it going to be? And that's been the biggest difficult thing. And, and, and we'll talked about that middle peel, you know, where, so what happens when it comes to the middle? You know, and that guy's a great shooter. What do you do? Um, you know, we're, we're, we're saying, you know, sometimes we'll say, you know what? We're not going to peel from that high guy. We're going to peel from the low guy because that's a difficult pass to throw the ball back once they cross the free throw line. So that defender now who's defending the shooter can peel to the corner and the guy on the ball can peel to the shooter. and and we've probably gotten, I don't know how, at least one or two steals a game from that because of the angle of that pass now goes, that guy's peeling right into the passing lane. And that was something that Will talked about, that a lot of time your peel guy's peeling into that slot passing lane, which was the pass that was becoming very prominent in the in the in a lot of the receiver principles and that the peel switch takes away. And once you get one or two of those deflections or, or steals, you can see the anxiety that starts to build in some of the offense, you know, and uh, it's, it's, it's can be risky, but I truly believe if the the players commit to it and they're hundred percent do it, then it can be done. And, you know, we're still getting it right. We're still not there. And, uh, but I know that, you know, our last two games, we played Mikawa and they beat us by 12 in the first game. We just didn't commit to that side of our defense. The second game was unbelievable. It was like we had seven guys on the court, and we end up winning by twenty six or something. And uh, you know, Mikawa are a, a very good team here in Japan and a very talented offensive team, but they couldn't deal with it. And then what that the other thing I like about the peel switching is it creates tempo, and and tempo is big for what we're trying to do on offense. So by taking some of these calculated risky switches. It's creating tempo, and um, that's that's good for us. We're we're okay with that, you know. And there's certain shots we're okay with. The other difficult thing I found with the peel switch is when the players start to just play for the peel switch rather than actually working hard on the ball. And that's probably been my biggest challenge. It was my biggest challenge last year, and 
towards the end of the season, we started to get better at not doing that, particularly when it's a pick and roll. You know, we're, we're very big on fighting over. So the player would just give up on it and just go for the peel switch. And that created no pressure on the offensive guy with the ball. And so that's something where we're, we're working hard at. The, the peel is only there as a last resort. It's not the thing we do every time. And that's something that we've got to, you know, continue to get better at. So we've started to do a lot more one-on-one work at practice and work on one-on-one footwork. And, 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 and we talk about the player protecting his triangle, you know, the guard yard thing. And we talk about you've got to protect your own triangle. And so, and not opening your feet too quickly in the pick and roll situations and you know, learn, teaching them how to get their arm and, and, and high foot over the screen so you're difficult to screen. You know, and, and having more pressure on the ball so that it's not an easy decision. And we've found the peel switches to be far more effective when the offense is sped up and going at, at full speed because that pass is a little bit different. But if the offense can go at the speed they want to, then the peel can become very dangerous. So, so many things here. And you talked about speeding up and, uh, you know, pushing pace. I mean, you can see how these things all go together in terms of your philosophy. And that's, it's really cool. In a really short time, we get a feel for how you guys play and I've watched you. So I've had a chance as well. But uh, one thing I just want to come back to, as we wrap this up is this concept of building the culture together with the players. Cause I'm imagining you are somewhat of an expert on this, having again, crossed these cultural barriers and these, just these, these different worlds, so to speak, that have helped you probably do this or experience this in a different way than a lot of us. So maybe can you share some of your insights on building this shared culture? Um, you know, the, the whole uh, cultural thing is something that's very Australian, uh, really Australian. Everyone talks about culture around the world and team sports and business, et cetera. But in Australia, we, we worked really hard at that side of it, you know, and, and it, it, it's a big thing. And, I remember a great story from the Australian swimming coach and about the culture that Australian swimming team had when they were basically ranked number one in the world. And they had a, uh, a swimmer from overseas practicing with them and he wasn't fitting into their culture. And so the coach headed down to talk to this swimmer. And as he walked into the change room, one of the Australian swimmers had this guy pinned against the wall telling him, hey, we don't do this here. You either start fitting into this or you can just get the hell out of here. And, and, the, and the coach said he turned around and knew he had great culture. He said that was when he realised that the players are enforcing everything about their program. And, it, and so it's, 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 it's led by the entire group. And that's what I'm trying to instill in every team I'm part of is that you can't be one person standing at the top. And that's really different for Japan because you've got this, this whole hierarchical culture of we do what the boss says, you know, people don't leave work until the boss leaves work. You've got all these different things, but what I want to teach the guys is the most powerful thing is you know, and the easiest way you can do it is say is when you form a fist, if you've got five fingers like this, it's, it's strong. But the moment one thing's breaking out, it becomes weak. It becomes weak. And together we can achieve so much. So we want 
this. And, I, and, and as I keep saying to my group right now, and this is one of the things we're trying to learn and we, we, we're getting there, but it's still got some time to go. I can't be the only person driving this. If I'm the one getting angry all the time, then after a while, I become white noise. I'm just the noise in the background. And, you know, you look at in the, the coaching profession, most coaches don't last much longer than if you get four years and in one situation in the professional world of coaching, that can sometimes be seen as a as a great, that's a pretty good, that's a pretty good go. I don't want to be one of those coaches. I want to be able to go to a program where we build a program that others want to come and be part of. The players there really love playing and being part of that program. You know, we, we form this culture that's a winning culture. And, and what's a winning culture? Just because your team might win on the scoreboard doesn't mean you have a winning culture. It's what you do every day. It's how you approach, you know. So we're going to sit down and discuss together what do you guys see as important in our culture? What do you think builds a winning program? And, and so together we came up with, uh, you know, a, a bunch of things that we believe. And, and they, they even talk about, like, we're, we're owned by Mitsubishi Electric, which is one of the biggest companies in Japan and most powerful companies in Japan. You know, our training facility is right on the Mitsubishi Electric uh, factory. So we have hundreds of people walk by our parking lot every day, you know, and, and our players even talked about acknowledging those people because they're the people that allow us to do what we love. And, you know, and I talked about, you know, imagine how some of those people, they're earning minimum wage, they're charging to work for eight to 10 hours a day, you know, and they drive, they walk past our car park and in our car park, there's a Maserati, there's multiple Mercedes-Benz, there's Lexus, there's BMWs. You know, you guys are getting paid all this money and they're out there flogging their gut. If we don't represent them the right way, we're actually doing wrong by them. You know, it's, it's, it's so, and the, and the players... That's a powerful really, example, yeah. You know, and, you know, the lady who, who vacuums, you know, our cleaner, who vacuums the stairs, I... You need to acknowledge that person because she's working her heart out and she's helping us have an environment that allows us to be our best. She's part of everything we do. And, and that has to be driven by every person from our rookies through to our veterans. And every person has the right to voice this culture. And then so then we, we evaluate that. You know, we have job descriptions for our players. We have our identities and themes and we have our culture. And we evaluate this every three weeks. Are we living up to these? And I have different players run the session. So everybody gets used to speaking. And that's a challenge for some of our guys, particularly the younger players. You know, they. but in time, and this is what I talk, talked about before, I want to build something that's long-term. No, I don't want short-term success. I want to come in here, you know, when, when you know, be lucky enough to win a championship in my second year and then by year four I'm I'm moved on I want a long-term program you know and, and the people want to be part of and you know people don't want to leave you know and, and you look at things like the Spurs and and you know those types of teams the Patriots and you know companies where where employees don't want to leave and um, that's what I want to build. And, and I don't think you can do that on your own. You've got to have everyone helping to build that. 
you know, and, and part of the reason I got this job was because a couple of my ex-players said, you need, we want this guy to come in because he's going to change this culture. And, and you know, that's, and that's through to, to our staff. I mean, we have, uh, I have a full-time interpreter. We have two, two managers, uh, two training staff, a full-time strength and conditioning coach, three assistant coaches, an assistant GM. And, you know, it's changing them too and challenging them to change their standards and to know that we're all part of this, not just, um, not just the company, not just me, you know, and it's got to be driven by all of us. And I remember a general manager, I sat down with him, who's been part of the club and the company now for, I think, over 30 years. And, you know, and I asked him all these questions about the history of the club and, and all of that, you know, and I said, look, we don't have any history of our club here. Well, why not? We've got to, we've got to embrace all those things. And if you look at, you know, the New Zealand and Australian cultures in their national programs, they all embrace the history of the past. The All Blacks in particular is amazing to watch, the New Zealand rugby team, you know, and you see what they do. And, and you know, and, and I know the, the All Blacks have a system where everybody cleans their changing rooms. Not, there's no cleaners. The players do that from the captain down. And I just think that subservient leadership is so important in building a culture. And that's something I drive. And uh, our guys are really, really starting to buy into it and love it. And you, you see how much fun they have now coming to practice, how much fun they have been around each other. And that they understand hard work is part of what we do, but intelligent work is part of what we do. And they're getting better and better at it and, and keeping each other accountable. And I just know that at some stage this year, we, we're going to really roll on um, because we do have some good talent because this is all going to bring this group so strongly together. That's great stuff, Coach. Uh, we're excited to follow your team and your progress. And, uh, you know, we can all uh, admire that, uh, that, that desire to be able to build that long-term program and uh, to be able to have that, that opportunity. So hopefully that is this stop for you. And uh, thank you so much for sharing on the podcast. It's been a pleasure and thanks for having me. And I, I hope I hope the listeners get one little pearl out of all this because you know, that's something I enjoy about listening to the podcast. You don't always get a lot of information, but you get a little pearl that you can take away. And, uh, you know, to use one from Zico Coronel, you know, he talked about the choke points, the offense. And I went, oh, I love that. I love that. That moment where you've got to counter it. You know, and that was a beautiful little pearl that he threw out that I hadn't heard before. And I just... And I love those little pills. Yeah, it's great stuff. And Zico at this point is uh, coaching in Japan too, along with a lot of other Australian coaches. So it's great. It's a fun league to watch coaches if you haven't had a chance yet. And uh, Coach Dennis, thanks again for joining us. Thank you very much. Hey, Coach. The best player development is coach development. It's never too late to join basketballimmersion.com. And now we've added two more courses, one on youth basketball coaching and one on advanced pick and roll concepts. Now you have over 25 courses to be able to learn from in addition to 600 videos and 70 plus masterclasses from experts around the world. In addition to an engaged, like-minded community, go to basketballimmersion.com or DM at bballimmersion on Twitter to get started today. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and to give the basketball podcast and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game. And to stay up to date on all things basketball immersion, Subscribe to our newsletter at basketballimmersion.com newsletter.